Before the show, a reminder that you can find more of our reporting on the NPR One app, along with a custom playlist of NPR stories and all your favorite podcasts. One of those podcasts should definitely be NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's a lot like our show if we only talked about movies, TV, books, and music, which sounds really fun. Check it out on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcast. All right, here's the show. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, and Election Day is tomorrow. We're going to tell you what the day holds for the candidates, what to watch for on election night, and how to keep up with our coverage through it all. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. And I'm Mara Lyason, national political correspondent. All right. Final day of the campaign. This episode is posting around 7 p.m. Eastern, which means in 24 hours, the first polls close in the East. We could have an historic upset from Donald Trump, or we could have the first female president-elect in U.S. history. It's going to be something either way, no? Either way, it's a big day. Really big day. First female president, first time other than George H.W. Bush that uh, somebody has succeeded in following a two-term president of their own party if she wins. And if Donald Trump wins, he's going to surprise a lot of betting markets, which have assumed that he won't win. And the first president that we'd have in years and years and years that is elected who has absolutely no political experience. Okay, so we gave you a rundown of where the candidates traveled today in yesterday's episode. Let's talk now about where they'll be tomorrow. Both candidates will spend election night in New York. Hillary Clinton will be at what her campaign is calling an election night event at the Javits Convention Center in New York, which has a huge glass ceiling. There's some symbolism going on there. Donald Trump will have what his campaign is calling a victory party at the New York Hilton in Midtown. So if you live in Manhattan, enjoy your traffic tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, Let's hear a bit of tape from the final day of the campaign. Here is Donald Trump in Sarasota, Florida today. But I am really thrilled to be here. This is the last day of our campaign. Who would have believed this? Who would have believed it? It's been some campaign, too. It's been some campaign. They say it's the single greatest movement, politically speaking, in the history of this country. Can you believe that? Can you believe it? That's quite an honor. And they say we'll get a tremendous amount of credit, win or lose. I said, no, 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 no. I don't want any credit if we lose. I'm not looking for credit. I'm not looking for credit. I'm looking to make America great again, not credit. This election will decide whether we are ruled by a corrupt political class. You've been watching what's going on. Hey, folks, the system is rigged. It's rigged, okay? The system is rigged. At least we know it. And people in this country, I think because of us, have never known it so obviously as they do now. The system is totally rigged. That was Trump in Florida. Here's Hillary Clinton in Pittsburgh. So, for for those who are still making up your minds or thinking maybe, maybe it's not worth voting at all, let me just say the choice in this election could not be clearer. It really is between division or unity, between strong and steady leadership or a loose cannon, between an economy that works for everyone, not just those at the top, and an economy that is set up and run for those at the top. 
Now, I have spent my public career fighting for kids and families and standing up for our country. And if you give me the privilege of your vote tomorrow, that is what I will do every single day of my presidency. I will get up in the White House and I will think about what I can do that day to knock down barriers, to create opportunities so that you have the chance to fulfill your own dreams. You see, I believe America's best days are still ahead of us. So, Mara, tomorrow night, what should we be watching for as this all goes down? What I'm going to be looking at is, first of all, the, the small group of remaining battleground states. NPR has it at North Carolina, Florida, and New Hampshire, plus one congressional district in Nebraska and one in Maine. I'll be watching for who wins the Senate. Does, do the Democrats pick up the four net seats they need if Hillary Clinton is the president to get the majority there? I'll be looking at whether or not Democrats can get more or less than 15 House pickups. They need 30 to get the majority there. Nobody thinks they'll do that, but I think 15 is the divider between them having a good night or not. I'll be watching to see if down-ballot Senate candidates, Senate Republican candidates, do better or worse than Donald Trump. That'll tell you if he had a negative or positive down-ballot effect. And at the very end of the night, I will be looking at how the loser reacts. Do they make a gracious concession speech? Or, as Donald Trump once suggested, that he might not accept the results of the election unless he won. So I think I'll be watching to see how both candidates react if they lose the election. So, Mara, you've covered so many elections in your illustrious career. I am wondering, do you have a sense of, you know, I keep hearing from people this could be a really short night, maybe we'll know the results by 1130, or the way you're sort of looking at how things are going right now, do you anticipate a, a much longer night? I would say the consensus right now is for a normal 11 p.m. to 11.30-ish night. Hmm. Uh, That's because it looks like Hillary Clinton has had a pretty steady two- to five-point lead in the national polls, and she's got so many paths to 270 electoral votes. If it gets later in the evening, that would tell me that Donald Trump is surprising everyone. So, you know, speaking of times when this race might be over, uh, Dan Zak at The Washington Post, a friend of mine, he recently did a roundup of all the call times from past races. Here are a few of them. In 2004, Bush versus Kerry, it was called at 11.19 a.m. the next day because Ohio was so close. In 08, McCain and Obama, it was called at 11 p.m. that night because Obama had won Pennsylvania and Ohio before then. In 2012, Romney and Obama, it was announced at 11.17 p.m., again with Obama winning Ohio. And we cannot forget the year 2000, Bush v. Gore, Supreme Court didn't settle things until the next month. It wouldn't be the first time if it went past election night, just saying. No, it certainly wouldn't. But that is not the norm. On the other hand, nothing about this election has been the norm. Not a thing. All right, time for a quick break. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wonder Capital, asking, what if you could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time? Introducing Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects. You can earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio. Best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. 
Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash NPR. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Okay, we're back. We're going to share some really good stories from Tamara Keith and Sarah McCammon in just a bit. Stick around for those. But first, I want to plug another piece from your friend of mine, Professor Ron Elving. He has a story right now on NPR.org called, What is the Electoral College and Why Does the U.S. Use It? We get questions here at the podcast all the time about the Electoral College. Ron breaks the whole thing down for you. Check it out, NPR.org. Okay. Let's talk about our plans for election night. We have heard from listeners asking if we'll be doing any live coverage, like a live stream of the podcast or anything like that. Well, we will, kind of. It'll be on the radio. Beginning at 8 p.m. Eastern, all of us from the podcast will be working on NPR's live election coverage. So mute that cable news for a bit and turn on your local public radio station. You can also stream your station online. Just go to npr.org stations to find it. You'll hear from all of us on the podcast throughout the night. Asma, Mara, both of you guys will be in the studio as part of NPR's live election coverage. What are you both be working on? Well, I'm going to be in the studio all night long, pretty much, talking about what the results mean and what they might mean for going forward. I'm also going to be writing the big write-through for Morning Edition, which is kind of the overview piece. That's what I always do. Yeah. And then I'm going to be... Doing all sorts of reporting on what happens to the Republican Party next, what are the takeaways from an election that really has upended every norm and every bit of conventional wisdom that we had, not only about elections, but about American democracy, and then looking forward to how the winner governs. That's a lot. That's a lot. But there is a lot to do after this election. Asma, what about you? So I will be in the studio looking at exit polls, looking at different demographic groups, and also paying attention to turnout. I have been doing that throughout this election year. And there's a couple of key demographic groups that I'll really be focused on quite a bit. One is going to be white working class. You know, we've been hearing for months and months about how Donald Trump is trying to appeal to this group. This is a group that he uh, seems to be winning over in very large margins, according to all the polls. But look, this is also a group that went for uh, the Republican candidates in the past couple of elections, and yet it's been shrinking. I mean, it is not a growing group in the electorate. Donald Trump's message is that, hey, there are a lot of these white, blue-collar voters out there who just haven't voted before, and that he's going to increase their ranks in the electorate. I'll be paying attention to see if he can do that. The other uh, sort of flip side of that that I'll be interested in is how uh, white college-educated women vote. Mm -hmm. We've been hearing a lot about a gender gap. The Democrats have, in a number of past elections, done really well with women. But what we're starting to see in the polls is that even among white women, which is a group that President Obama lost four years ago, Hillary Clinton seems to be doing better. Uh, If she wins college-educated voters, that would be kind of a historic first. Going back in all of the exit polls, far back as I could go since we've had formal exit polls, never have we seen a Democrat win that group. And lastly, the group that I am very keen to see what will play out on Election Day are Latinos. You know, everybody's been saying that this election cycle could maybe awaken Latinos. They've been considered a sleeping giant. They There are so many Latinos just who are increasing in the electorate because of population growth. But historically, um, you know, we've actually seen in the electorate that more Latinos who are eligible to vote did not vote last time than voted. I mean, so, so they're not even reaching 50 percent turnout. So I'm curious to see if 
if we see the Latino community energized in ways that we haven't seen before. You guys are so smart. I'll be looking for gifts and vines and memes on the internet. <laughs> what else? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Listen for all of that in NPR's live coverage. We'll be back with something short and fun tomorrow in this feed for you. Check around 2 p.m. Eastern. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. And I'm Mara Liasson, national political correspondent. There was no music there, but that's because we're not done. Um, you have noticed Tamara Keith and Sarah McCammon have not been in the podcast for a bit. That is because they are the two on this desk who are pretty much always with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. They have put in a long, hard year of covering those two candidates. And we want to share some of their work with you. Uh, two big stories they did for NPR about how our candidates became what they are now. Here's Sarah McCammon on Donald Trump. Trump set the tone for his campaign from the very first moments. At Trump Tower in New York, after riding down the famous golden escalators with his wife Melania, Trump told supporters the U.S. had become a dumping ground for other countries' problems, and he singled out Mexico. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. That led to the central promise of Trump's candidacy. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. Trump also promised to bring back manufacturing jobs and renegotiate or pull out of what he described as unfair trade deals and defeat ISIS, a message that quickly resonated with many frustrated voters. Early on, Trump's rallies were filled with large, excited crowds where he'd make this promise. We have to make America great again. The wave of enthusiasm for the brash real estate developer from Queens who'd never held office mystified many pundits and political observers who largely wrote him off at first. Here's an exchange from July 2015 between Democratic Congressman Keith Ellison of Minnesota and ABC's George Stephanopoulos. This man has got some uh, momentum, and uh, we better be ready for the fact that he might be leading the Republican ticket next. <laughs> I know you don't believe that, but I want to go on. <laughs> Sorry to laugh. That sentiment was reinforced by a series of controversial remarks that Trump made in the early months of the campaign about Senator John McCain. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured. Fox News host Megyn Kelly. You know, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes, uh, blood coming out of her wherever. And then in December, Trump made this announcement. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on? That statement followed the attacks in Paris and San Bernardino by Islamic extremists. The proposal, which Trump has since altered several times, brought widespread criticism from across the political spectrum. But it was clear that his tough talk was what many primary voters were looking for. Trump knew this well and bragged in January that nothing he could say or do would dissuade his loyal supporters. I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. Trump's loss the next month in the first in the nation Iowa caucuses to Texas Senator Ted Cruz gave hope to some Republicans that perhaps Trump was beginning to wane, but the GOP establishment failed to coalesce around an alternative candidate. We want to thank the people of New Hampshire, right? Do we love the people of New Hampshire? Trump's first big win came just over a week after his loss in Iowa. 
Many political observers argued Trump's popularity had a limit, but plenty of GOP leaders worried he would barrel toward the nomination. In early March, the party's 2012 nominee, Mitt Romney, made a last-ditch effort to persuade Republicans to stop Trump. He's playing the members of the American public for suckers. He gets a free ride to the White House, and all we get is a lousy hat. Romney said Trump lacks the temperament and judgment to be president and warned of economic and foreign policy crises if he were to win. But GOP voters had other thoughts. I want to begin by thanking the people of South Carolina. This we is love Nevada. We Thank love you, Nevada. New York. We love New York. I mean, you go Rhode Island and you go Maryland and you go Connecticut and you go Pennsylvania and you go, I mean, the whole thing, Delaware. As Trump's nomination became inevitable, House Speaker Paul Ryan, the highest ranking Republican elected official, gave Trump his endorsement in early June after initially saying he wasn't ready to support Trump. Days later, Trump was under fire once again for racially charged comments about a federal judge of Mexican descent who was presiding over a fraud lawsuit against the now-defunct Trump University real estate seminar. Trump questioned the ability of the judge to be fair because of his heritage, and Ryan couldn't avoid being asked about it. Claiming a person can't do the job because of their race is sort of like the textbook definition of a racist comment. As the Republican primary season drew to a close on June 7th, a chastened Trump read from a teleprompter during a press conference at his golf club in New York, promising to make the party proud. I understand the responsibility of carrying the medal, and I will never, ever let you down. After vanquishing 16 primary opponents, defying the expectations of the establishment, Trump made that promise to party leaders still concerned about whether he could adopt a more presidential demeanor. At the Republican National Convention in Cleveland, much of the focus was on unifying against Hillary Clinton, as speaker after speaker painted her as corrupt and scandal-ridden. It was there that the crowd began shouting, lock her up, at the mention of Clinton. Trump tried to present himself as a team player and uniter of the party. Who would have believed that when we started this journey on June 16th last year, we, and I say we, because we are a team, would have received almost 14 million votes. Soon, Trump was dismaying many in the party once again with his criticism of the parents of a Muslim soldier killed in Iraq who spoke out against Trump at the Democratic National Convention. He was, you know, very emotional and probably looked like uh, a nice guy to me. His wife... uh, if you look at his wife, she was standing there. She had nothing to say. She probably, maybe she wasn't allowed to have anything to say. You tell me. But After another round of criticism, Trump went on, continuing to hold the kinds of large rallies that had brought him success in the primary. He continued to attack Hillary Clinton, calling her corrupt and highlighting conspiracy theories about her health. Those were fueled by Clinton falling ill with what turned out to be pneumonia at a 9-11 ceremony. And then, the Friday before the second presidential debate, an October surprise that many predicted would doom Trump. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the... In a recording from a 2005 taping of the TV show Access Hollywood, Trump can be heard on a hot mic bragging about groping and kissing women without consent. Trump apologized for the video and tried to shift the focus by bringing women who'd accused Bill Clinton of sexual harassment or assault to the second debate. 
CNN host Anderson Cooper questioned Trump repeatedly about whether he'd really done what he described on that recording. But I have tremendous respect for women. Have you ever done those things? have respect for me. And I will tell you, no, I have not. Within days, Trump was facing a cascade of allegations from women who said he had done those things. Trump, always the counterpuncher, denied them all and threatened to sue his accusers. He kept the focus on Hillary Clinton's email scandal and questions about her family's foundation, issues that reinforced his narrative that his rival represented the failed and corrupt Washington establishment. In the waning weeks of the campaign, a new slogan, Drain the Swamp, joined chants of Build the Wall and Lock Her Up at Trump's rallies. And you're right about the swamp. Say it again. Right? You better believe it. Boy, that is... The call to upend the political system and replace it with something new has defined the trash-talking real estate mogul's campaign and validated the frustrations and fears of millions of voters. By the end of election night, Trump will know whether voters validated his vision for America. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Sarah McCammon will be back in the podcast in our election night episode. She will actually be talking to us from Trump's election night party. Tamara Keith will talk to us from Hillary Clinton's party that night. And here's her report on Clinton's path to the nomination. There are many places you could start the story of Hillary Clinton's run for the presidency, her election to the Senate, her unsuccessful campaign in 2008, and how she recovered from it, her announcement video and surprise road trip. But September 14th, 2014, seems as good a day as any. Well, hello, Iowa. I'm back. Clinton was at an annual Democratic event in Iowa, playing coy about her political plans. But behind the scenes, she was consulting with advisors and beginning to plot out what a 2016 Clinton campaign would look like. Before Clinton ever got around to announcing her intentions, her campaign was hit with a bombshell. Clinton had used a private email server for official business while Secretary of State. All set? Good afternoon. Clinton was a month away from announcing her candidacy, facing down a scandal and a mob of reporters with questions. Looking back, it would have been better if I simply used a second email account and carried a second phone, but at the time, this didn't seem like an issue. Oh, it was an issue, all right, with help along the way from Republicans in Congress, conservative activist lawyers, and even the FBI. The email issue lingered over Clinton, occasionally raining down bad headlines at inconvenient moments. In April, the will she or won't she question simply became when will she? And then her campaign released a video featuring a diverse group of Americans talking about what they were looking forward to doing in the year ahead. It ended with Clinton. I'm getting ready to do something, too. I'm running for president. A couple of days later, Clinton reappeared in Iowa, having ridden from New York in a Secret Service van known as Scooby. I think it's fair to say that uh, as you look across the country, the deck is still stacked in favor of those already at the top. And... There's something wrong with that. At that moment, it would have been hard for anyone to predict how this campaign has turned out. In the primary, Clinton's biggest challenge came from the left. 
Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren never got into the race, but Bernie Sanders did, with a message focused on income inequality and campaign finance reform. He had the aura of a crumpled professor, but was received by young people and white liberals as a rock star. Whoa, got a lot of people here tonight. On the strength of social media, the Sanders movement grew filling larger and larger venues. You know, sometimes uh, our campaign has been referred to as a uh, fringe campaign. Well, if this is fringe, I would hate to see mainstream. Thank you all very much. Meanwhile, Clinton continued to hold small events, roundtable discussions and town hall-style gatherings. Many wondered whether her candidacy was generating enthusiasm. October 2015 was quite possibly the best month of the campaign for Clinton because of three things. The first Democratic debate. And that is that the American people are sick and tired of hearing about your damn emails. Thank you. Me too. Me too. The 11-hour Benghazi hearing that put her stamina on display. I've lost more sleep than all of you put together. I have been racking my brain about what more could have been done or should have been done. And Vice President Joe Biden's decision not to run. I believe we're out of time, the time necessary to mount a winning campaign for the nomination. For a time at least, Clinton's path to the nomination seemed more certain, but it didn't last. Sanders continued to gain on her, and come February 1st, the Iowa caucuses could have gone either way. It was so close, in fact, when Clinton came out to give her victory speech, it wasn't clear whether she had actually won. So as I stand here tonight, breathing a big sigh of relief, thank you, Iowa. Nine days later, the outcome wasn't even remotely in question. Sanders won New Hampshire by more than 20 percent, raising gobs of money, enough to fuel a lengthy primary battle. But Clinton and her campaign stuck with the plan, which included contingencies for fighting all the way to the convention. On June 7th, Clinton was finally able to declare victory, and she did it in a big greenhouse that, of course, had a glass ceiling. My mother believed that life is about serving others, and she taught me never to back down from a bully, which it turns out was pretty good advice. There was no doubt Clinton was referring to Donald Trump. And while she had been worrying about Bernie Sanders, Trump had demolished a historically large Republican field. Hillary Clinton had won the opponent lottery. Though as much as the unpredictable, inflammatory Trump was a gift to Clinton, it was also a risk. 2016 had all the markings of a change election, and no one represents change more than outsider Donald Trump. Clinton had already made a strategic choice that made some of her top aides nervous. She wouldn't run against Trump like any other Republican. She would build a case that he was unfit to be president of the United States. And she got a big assist from a man named Kieser Khan and Trump himself. On the final night of the Democratic convention, Khan told the story of his son, a soldier killed in combat in Iraq while protecting the others in his unit. The Khan family is Muslim and expressed dismay at the way Trump talked about Muslims. Donald Trump, you're asking Americans to trust you with their future. Let me ask you, have you even read the United States Constitution? 
He pulled a pocket constitution out of his suit jacket and changed the course of the presidential race. Within days, Trump was criticizing the Khan family and in turn being roundly criticized by Democrats and Republicans alike. And this set up a pattern that would repeat itself throughout the campaign. At the first presidential debate, Clinton laid the groundwork for a week-long chain reaction that would damage Trump's campaign by saying Trump had demeaned a former Miss Universe, calling her Miss Piggy and Miss Housekeeping. Donald, she has a name. Where did you find her? Her name Where is Alicia Machado. Where did you find her? And this? she has become a U.S. citizen, and you can bet oh, really? she's going to vote okay. this November. Okay, good. Before long, there was something that rocked the race that Clinton had nothing to do with a tape of Trump talking about kissing and groping women. And Clinton might have been on the glide path to the presidency, if only the attention could have stayed on Trump. But it didn't. There was her bout with pneumonia and collapse outside of the 9-11 memorial that not only raised questions about her health, but about her honesty. There was the WikiLeaks release of her campaign chairman's personal email. And finally, with just 10 days to go before the election, the FBI investigation into Clinton's private email server emerged one more time. Clinton had been running positive ads and delivering speeches about bringing Americans together if she was elected. But in the last week, she returned to a theme she had hit many times before. Only now, the contrast she was drawing with Trump was even more stark. If Donald Trump were to win this election, we would have a commander-in-chief who is completely out of his depth, and whose ideas are incredibly dangerous. Someone who wants more countries to have nuclear weapons and who could easily insult a foreign leader or maybe, heaven forbid, start a real war instead of just a Twitter war. If Hillary Clinton convinces enough Americans Donald Trump is simply unacceptable for the presidency, she would be the first female president. And she would also face incredible challenges, including repairing her own reputation, battered by two years of campaigning, and the email scandal that may never fully go away. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Tamara Keith, she will be in our election night episode as well. In your feed, first thing Wednesday morning. That is it for today. We'll be back tomorrow, election day. Check your feed around 2 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I am Sam Sanders, and thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.